Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of 8 Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel-Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend Brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. I have a, a little bit different show for you today. I have two really interesting guests, and the third guest will be me. I think I'll go first. It's been a long time since I've gotten some things off my chest and, and off my mind that, that have been on my mind. So... My guests today are going to be Chris Walkowitz, who you heard before the Westminster Dog Show. She wrote the the, uh, the book Dog Show, Judging the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. She's going to talk about how the Wire Fox Terrier won or why and what she thought of the picks and help us to sort of understand what we were looking at. And then a, a marvelous research veterinarian at UC Davis, Dr. Benjamin Hart, is going to talk about a study he's done that shows that early spay-neuter of dogs, in this case golden retrievers, but perhaps many other dogs, is highly detrimental to their health and leads them towards cancer and joint disease, which is something that over the eight and a half years of this show, I have actually touched on before, and it's very un-PC because we all think all dogs should be spayed and neutered as soon as possible, but there are a lot of logical and now it turns out factual reasons to reconsider that. What I want to talk to you about first is hatred and anger and moral indignation and fury at some of the topics that, that I deal with on the show and some of the colleagues that I have in in not just this show, but, but also in the various shows on Radio Pet Lady Network. And I think it's important to step back and understand that where dogs and cats are concerned and even our relationship with other animals on the planet it's really helpful to all of us to live our lives with some kind of balance and decency to understand that everybody cares about the animals. If they're listening to this show, if, you're, if you've been a fan of Dog Talk and followed my work over the years, it's really obvious to say you care about pets in some way. But the way you care about them by, let's say, being a vegan and never owning a pet and never wearing anything that came from an animal and being part of rescues and sanctuaries and having nothing but sometimes, not all vegans in these situations, but anger and, and, and frustration at those who still eat animals or, I mean, somehow that's just as bad to some people as having a puppy mill in your, in your, on your farm down in Arkansas. It's important to understand that no matter where you come from in caring about dogs and cats, perhaps other pets, and 
in being interested in all aspects of us sharing our lives with animals, which is really what this show is about. Everyone's point of view and position has its merits. And the people having those, those positions or thoughts are okay. It's okay for them to have a different opinion than you and look at it in a different way. I, I stopped to, to think when I got some hate mail when I started. I, I had been doing a podcast with Wayne Paselli, who's the CEO of the Humane Society of the United States in Washington, D.C. And I had been doing podcasts on the website of hsus.org for about a year and then migrated the show to my own Radio Pet Lady Network. And having done that, then am interspersing my conversations with him about all kinds of animal issues, animal welfare, animal conservation, all kinds of species all over the globe, actually, with members of the Humane Society Veterinary Medical Association, which I actually had never been that clear about. But these are members of the AVMA. They are licensed veterinarians. But they also want to identify themselves as veterinarians who care about the humane treatment of animals. And that might come as a little bit of a surprise that their understanding of what the AVMA, AVMA stands for and is often referred to as many august bodies of people in positions of power are as a lot of older white men that what they stand for is not always about humane treatment and sometimes not about it at all. I'd only been concerned myself from the pet perspective in the fact that the AVMA will not speak out against declawing, which in every other so-called civilized nation in the world is illegal. It is against the law. And in America, it is embraced by veterinarians, um, whether it's to make money, whether it's out of complete ignorance of the mutilation they're doing of a cat's feet. I'm not one to say, but that it's cruel and that it is barbaric and that it is mutilation and that it does not solve the problems that it is touted to solve, i.e. cat scratching on your furniture, who instead will bite you and start to eliminate inappropriately and often be sent out the door or to a shelter where they may not survive at all, that that is not an acceptable position. But of course, they're also very involved in factory farming, uh, also known as food animal production, in research and in big pharma. The AVMA veterinarians are involved in all of those areas. And so they have different masters to serve, if you will, than the small animal vets who are taking care of our animals. All those people are people who started out in life and may still wake up every day and go to sleep every day feeling good about what they do. Nobody is evil or the devil or out to do wrong and harm. I think that for me, the the joy of this show and the really the, the privilege of having this platform is to look at the gray areas, to come across strong about something and then have somebody say, well, you know, there's another angle from which you could look at that. For example, Southern Transport. When I, it was brought to my attention that there were some individuals and some organizations that appeared to be making profit from transporting homeless and quite ill dogs, mostly dogs more than cats, from the south to the, to the northeast. That was something I talked about on the air. Well, I had an, an owner of a, of a dog that came from a southern rescue, and she'd been to the rescue to get the dog, and she was very, it was very important to her that the state not be mentioned and that the rescue not be mentioned because the conditions there were so incredibly horrific. However, the dog was fantastic, and the rescue was doing a valiant, brave job, and she just wanted things to be seen in that perspective. And then another listener said, you know, there's someone doing incredible work, a, a particular rescue organization that's so above recrimination in everything they do. It's being done so brilliantly. 
the work they do, the way the rescue and the transport and the health is being done. And I had that the lady from that rescue on the show. She'll be back on the show. We actually became friends off the air. Well, telephone friends anyway. In the modern day, that's about as close as you get to friendship. If you can get past email, that's a friend. And I feel delighted to have people say, but hang on, look at this from another perspective. And I'm great. Thank you for pointing it out to me. Let me bring that to everybody. But when I get an email that says, it's unbelievable that you would do anything with the Humane Society of the United States. I'm surprised that any pet company wants anything to do with you. There's a kind of uh, evangelical craziness about the backlash against the fact that the Humane Society of the United States has some platforms they're trying to push through. And imagine this, they want people who have mass numbers of dogs for breeding purposes to give them food, veterinary care, shelter, and water. That's what they are lobbying for. And the people who are stirred up against that, many of whom seem to be um, in the, the sort of in the part of the stands during the show, if you will, that are all about, well, what's so wrong with, with mass production of puppy, what I call puppy farming. I mean, come on, they're only animals. It's a commodity. The end user, the owner, gets it all cleaned up from a pet store. And what's the big harm? Well, we all know what the big harm is. But the Humane Society of the United States and no humane society in this country or any other country is opposed to pet ownership. It's all about stewardship, uh, guardianship that's done intelligently and kindly and humanely in societies where those thing, same things are done humanely. The American Kennel Club, the AKC, it puts on dog shows. I have been a big believer since I was a little girl and first had Bedlington Terriers, which was the breed that my family had for the first uh, 17 years of my life, a number of generations of them. Although one, our first one, Pango, lived to 16 and a half, so there wasn't much room for other generations, actually, by the time uh, I went off to college and then at the other side of that wound up with, with a Golden Retriever and a Cocker Spaniel, both which I got directly from breeders in Southern California whose homes I went to and met the parents and so forth and so on. Uh, I, I guess that the AKC represents those breeders, and I've had a number of them on Dog Talk back in the day when there was a, a, a segment of the show called Meet the Breeders, if you remember. And it's because I wanted everyone, all of us, to get to know who would be someone who would dedicate their life to clumber spaniels. Why? What, what did it mean to them? And what kind of dogs were they turning out? And, and what should we know about that kind of person when they're breeding dogs in, in terms of adding a pet to our own life? Well, there were people who were disgusted that I had dog breeders on the show. That was just disgusting was the word used actually by a pug rescue in Vermont that was only rescuing pugs mind you so if there were no pug breeders then that whole rescue many 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 volunteers and foster homes would have nothing to do because they weren't interested in just rescue transporting dogs from point a to point b fostering them getting them well finding them homes they only wanted to do that for pugs well it's sort of the, the inherent contradiction of that seems sort of funny, except for that it was really sad because how could that person be so disgusted by the good pug breeders who adored pugs? And most pug breeders, the pugs live in their beds, certainly in their homes. I'm talking about good pug breeders, not the, the breeders of the pugs you find in a pet store, none of whom have been bred in a home by responsible people. And yet the AKC also gives their papers to those puppy farmers, encourages them. Uh, makes incentives for them, 
wants every litter to be registered with them, every puppy to be registered with them, regardless of the conditions in which the breeding pairs live or the puppies are raised. So I guess there's an inherent contradiction there. And yet today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Benjamin Hart, whose extraordinary work in looking at the effects of early spay-neuter on dogs, a negative effect, provable and extremely worrisome, has been funded by the AKC Canine Health Foundation, which funds a lot of extraordinary research. And without them, those topics would never be looked at. There's so many sides to, to everything that we look at and to get all up in arms and all indignant and, and um, holier than thou is really a problem. And if I've ever done that, I know I've been kicked right off my pedestal and grateful for it. I used to early, early in this show, be vehement about pet food, commercially produced pet food, uh, highly processed carbohydrate based pet foods. And in fact, the Gracie award that I won for this show was based on a live talk I gave about it at the wonderful Bay Theater in Sag Harbor, which was a benefit for what was then um, the previous name of Peconic Public Broadcasting when it was at LIU, when there was an LIU. And it was great to be morally indignant and holier than thou and, and shaking my fist. But, you know, doing the new show that I have on Radio Pet Lady Network called Pet Food Advisors with Dr. Sean Delaney, who's a board-certified veterinary nutritionist and a, the kindest man and such a, a wise man, highly knowledgeable, but I've come to understand that all the people that work in all the companies that make pet food think they're doing something good, or at least okay. They're not setting out to make food full of so-called toxic waste or food that's going to make your dog or cat fat. They think that what they're doing is a, a good work, and the, the ones designing these diets are doing it with the same strong sense of, for them, principles and passion as those foods that... I invite to be sponsors on my show and that I feed to my own dogs. And what Dr. Sean Delaney's pointed out to me is there are people who can only afford something from the lower shelf, if you will, for a bar analogy. And the top shelf food is out of their range in terms of money. Or maybe they have a life in which it's not possible to be mixing up various things for food. Uh, just whatever kibble they can get their hands on in a bowl. Hey, that's a lot better than no dinner at all for their dogs. The understanding that everyone is trying to do their best within their, within the, the, the lane on which they're traveling this road in life. And I think it's really important that we all understand that and not point fingers and make assumptions and, and have this kind of anger and judgmentalism that I'm, I'm trying to have less of certainly in my pet life. And if that bleeds over into my personal life, wow, wouldn't that be a total bonus Everyone is doing the best they can, and I think the more that I have the, the privilege of learning because this show has become such a valuable asset in the, in the world of the pet world as a place where people who care about pets and are interested in the whole picture are listening, that most anyone that I invite here has eagerly said yes. And that means that I can have people from all sides of all issues, and as you know also, some extraordinary authors, I mean, from all over the world, writing about so many different aspects of pet ownership and sometimes things that aren't even pets but are animals. And I think that we have, I certainly appreciate and have such high, high 
regard for everyone who comes on this show and try to show them that respect even when I may be asking them questions that are somewhat leading or controversial. Controversy is good. Controversy is what keeps me at the microphone and I hope keeps you at the radio or however it is that you listen to radio these days. It's probably not a radio with a, a knob and it's what makes me particularly grateful to Dr. Wally Smith and everyone at Peconic Public Broadcasting who in no, at no time have ever tried to muzzle me or, or handcuff me or send me out to the kennel without dinner. You know, they, they understand that where I come from is a place of wanting knowledge and to have light shown on whatever aspects of dog and cat ownership we don't know about and need to know more about and maybe need to, to think about in ways different ways than we have before. So that's my little soapbox moment. I'm going to try to have more of those as time goes on because I think that, that I too need to be reminded of why I'm here and why it matters to me, which it does greatly, and why you listening matters to me tremendously. So I will be right back after a quick break with Chris Walkowitz, and we'll talk about the Westminster Dog Show, and you don't have to be upset that it's a dog show. It's a good thing. It's okay, really. You can enjoy yourself. We'll be right back. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feelaway for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptil plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Chris Walkowitz, the author of Dog Show Judging, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is a really wonderful book to read if you want to be a judge, but even if you want to understand what do dog show judges do. And Chris, I have been dying to talk to you ever since the best in show at the Westminster Dog Show was picked to find out what did you think about Sky the Wire Fox Terrier and to thank you for coming back here to tell us all how did this, how do you think this decision was made? Well, I'm pleased to be back with you. Thank you. Um, I am I am absolutely delighted. What a gorgeous dog. And she's everything a wire fox should be. She, The wire fox standard is very precise. Ah. And she fits into that category exactly. She nailed her stack. More about that later. Yes. She, she had the alert expression. And she's just got a wonderful temperament and attitude, which made her really stand out. How can you go wrong? There were seven wonderful dogs out there. Now, of course, some of them, the picks from those various groups were a little confusing to some of us. And I know we don't have time to discuss each of the groups and how that judge at that moment in time picked his or her choice. But some of them are confusing. Um, sometimes it seemed almost as if this is a strange analogy, but sometimes movie critics, they have their best picks of the year and who they think will win the Oscar, mm -hmm. and they'll pick like some obscure movie that no one ever saw that was in, you know, Hungarian. It's like, oh, please, can't you just pick one of the ones that we all know and are familiar right. with? <laughs> and I just wonder in a group, when you have a group that has 
let's say even the terriers, which this gorgeous, beautiful wire fox terrier came out of. And they, and they spoke about the dandy Dinmont terrier, who's so adorable. Or no, the PBGV. They've, that's another group. But I mean, a, a, a dog of which there are, in one case, there was one dog that came to Westminster. One dog for that breed. So right. how does that, leaving aside the fact that there's zero competition, totally zero, how does the judge really know the greatest PBGV that's ever been in a show ring when maybe the judge has only ever seen one in his or her life? Um, well, we certainly hopefully have seen more than one because, of course, we've been judging for several years before you get asked to do right. a prestigious show such as Westminster. And um, we also see them in our studies before we ever apply for the breed. Uh-huh. So, oh, you can apply right. breed by breed to be a judge? Yes. I'll yes. be darned. So the fact that when I say you've only seen a few because maybe at each show there's only one or none. So that's kind of confusing. So then just I just want to, before you explain about how great Sky was, and that dog really was like something surreal. I mean, just so amazing kinetic and yet the bloodhound was kind of like goofy and the crowd was crazy about nathan the bloodhound but that doesn't have anything to do with why a judge would pick that bloodhound right i mean part of it is behavior in the show ring you speak about sky's stack and the fact that when the handler would stop that dog just got herself in the right position and held it right right and and that's an advantage of many terriers um many working dogs uh, for instance, the bloodhound is not going to hit that's the right. stock and look as glamorous as the wire fox terrier did. So that you aren't judging totally on that. The bloodhound, for instance, I I loved the bloodhound. He had the furled ears, meaning that the ears should be rather twirly, so Ooh, that they nice. pick up the scent into those large nostrils. Yes, the wrinkles are there to hold the scent in also. Interesting. I mean, bloodhounds are marvelous tracking dogs, of course, looking for lost children yes. or somebody who's uh, strayed off or whatever. It uh, That is what they are supposed to do and have. But they're not going to ever look as glamorous as a wire fox. And I think that, I forget, they were showing a lot of statistics during the, the televised version of, of Westminster, and they'd say how often a hound had ever won best in show. And terriers have won, I don't know, something like 35 times over the 138 right. years. And maybe right. hounds, like, never. Did you, when, you, when that <laughs> bloodhound got picked from the hound group, and I know I said we weren't going to talk about the groups, but it's still so interesting to those of us that still have such a hard time understanding how can you choose amongst dogs so extremely different type of body, of of movement, of hair coat, of everything from each other? Did that bloodhound, when he was in his group of the hound group, did he jump out at you and you go, oh, my God, that's just it? Yes, he you, certainly did. Really? Yes. Really? Absolutely. I thought, I thought he was the epitome of the breed. Very, very nice dog, as were... The others in their group, they're just terrific dogs. Okay, what well, to me was it? Dogs that are at Westminster are pretty yes, good quality. Exactly, they're they're supposedly the epitome of their breed. The Irish Water Spaniel is an example to me of what I was saying about oh, let's just pick a movie that no one's ever heard of in a strange language, you know, that runs mm -hmm. three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I have a friend who has an Irish Water Spaniel. She also has chocolate po- standard poodles. And, and you know, I, I other than the tail and maybe there's some stuff if you want to just get down to nuts and bolts that's so different. But of all the Spaniels that were there, and there were some gorgeous Cockers and English Spaniels and Clumber Spaniels, was that Irish Water Spaniel no doubt about it to a judge's eye? I know you haven't been invited to Westminster, but you've done a lot of ju- dog showing, show judging. Was that oh, Irish I Water Spaniel like the Irish greatest? Irish Water of- Spaniel, really? she is absolutely gorgeous. She is right on just exactly what the breed should be. Absolutely wonderful. And her movement was just breathtaking. Across the ground, just the floating yeah. quality? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the wire fox has that almost no knee bend, that marvelous straight leg. Right. Right. Very a very staccato kind of way of moving, which is obviously appropriate to the terrier. Was the way that dog carried herself and held herself the thing that that distinguished her besides the beautiful coat, which is a a function of grooming? She could look like an old bedraggled street dog, right? I mean, so <laughs> underneath the gorgeous grooming, which was like a stiff toy, was it also her movement and her attitude that really? St- oh yeah. So it's not just oh, her yeah. outfit. That all counts in. Absolutely, it all counts in. And we have a saying that, you know, when you're doing best in show, you can hardly go wrong because you have seven wonderful dogs right. in there. But uh, all of a sudden, one will just take your eye and you'll think, bingo, that's I it. see, I see. That's it. This is my dog for today. I this see. This is the one I would take home if I could take it home. Which, yeah. of course, you never could. No, of course. And she was lovely. I thought the judge was incredibly gracious, not just elegant looking, but the way she spoke. And she was very admiring of all the dogs. And she said something that, that was something I wanted to ask you about. She said, I want to thank all of the group judges and the breed judges for giving me these beautiful dogs to choose from amongst. And I thought that was quite a wonderful way of putting it. The rest of us don't stop and think that each of those judges has, they're, they're a piece of the puzzle. Because it's the right. dog they send into the best in show ring that makes it the true contest that it is. Right, right. So each of them has to be kind of spot on in what they're doing too. A number of people wrote to me, just friends, colleagues, whatever, and they said, was that miniature pincher so great to you? And when I looked at the toy dogs, all of which are so unique in their way and so different from each other, I have to say, and I've, I've known a min pin and, the one I knew had more attractive, if you will, or dramatic colorings or uh, uh, two different colors. Was the min pin that great? Because the min pin seemed to just be jumping around like a bed bug the, the rest of the time, too. It's like, well, I don't know. Is that the comportment that you want in a miniature pincher or in a show ring? Or you look oh, at Sky, the, you do? You want that wonderful. bounciness? I was pulling for her, too. I Well, actually, I wound up pulling for all of them. But uh, I was pulling for her. Uh, because she's not only beautiful and has the absolute correct movement for the breed, I think she was perhaps a little nervous with a crowd noise. I see. But um, I was pulling for her partially because that man who was handling her was not a professional. He was her breeder, her oh, owner, her no handler. Oh, no wonder. And, and that was really neat for a, yes. a dog to reach that goal absolutely with a breeder owner handler not a professional that's a great point that tells you how great that little dog is 
That is a super great point. And David Fry didn't, the announcer who's who's been on this show as well, did not make that point as well as you just have. Because anybody can hire, if they're lucky, a handler. And the handler who handled Sky had one best in show with a Scottish Terrier only four right. years ago. So the man is obviously a very brilliant handler. And I wanted to ask you a little something about his handling technique or skills and what the, how that how that reflected on Sky. But I do understand that if you own a dog and either then own the puppy or you buy the puppy and then you're the owner of the puppy and you bring it along to his championship and you get into Westminster and you beat everybody in the toy group, that's enormous. You really have your right. David and Goliath because these handlers are such professionals, mm -hmm. paid a lot of money, and it's all they do. Whereas an owner, handler, breeder has probably a, a, just a normal profession to afford his lifestyle, right? Exactly. So it's not exactly. something he just does every single day in and out. So that, that makes that more, more. I think it would be easier for us at home to, to root for those like the little guys in a way because it's just so homespun, you know, they manage mm -hmm. to get into there. Okay, so if the handler really matters, matters a lot, and clearly there's no doubt about that, then this gentleman who handled Skye, I wondered he didn't look like, if you will, a good fit for the dog. He's a, a, a big, overweight man. And so you think, gosh, this is a guy that's going to be in the spotlight in front of tens of millions of people. This is just me thinking. Wouldn't you want to work a little harder on your own physique if you're working so hard on this dog being in perfect condition, physically, mentally, his coat, his musculature, his attitude? I don't know. Is that I'm, This is not meant to be in any way gossipy or catty, but doesn't it seem that it sort of gives a mixed message? The dog is... Is it, I don't know. Does that sound to you like a strange thing to say? Uh, well, yeah. Um, I think the neatest thing, one of the neatest things about the dog game is that we are all judged by our dog. Interesting. Not our figures. Interesting. Not our religion. Not our size. Not our sexual preference. Right. Not our color. Nothing. We are all judged by the dog we have, and that man is a phenomenal handler. Well, he, he must be, Chris, but what talented. is it, since he doesn't form a backdrop for the dog that kind of disappears, which we talked about the last time you were on, where, you, where the dog uh -huh. is all that shines, and the person kind of even chooses their clothing to kind of either blend with the dog or not stand out, and yet this man stood out as being so much bigger than the dog, and dark suit, and the dog is you know, cream and tan or whatever the colors are, are officially called. What is it that he does so well that he obviously has done brilliantly because he's been the winner twice. He hasn't just been in the best in show ring. He has taken it home twice. What is right. it that he does? How, what is it that we in, as observers could watch and say, ah, I see. I see what he's doing right there. Not that I could do it myself, but I see what he's doing. It's, it's not so much what he is doing at the moment in the show because they all did the right things for their particular dogs. Um, it is building a rapport over the months and I see. sometimes years that yes. you have a particular dog and working with them and making sure that the dog is having fun, that the yes. dog enjoys it, yes. uh, which obviously Skye does. She's, she's very happy little gal yes and, yes uh very friendly 
it was, um, yeah, you'd like to see somebody disappear into the woodwork. And for me, he did. Interesting, because you were so captivated by the dog. Right. The rest of us, I think, are still in watching, trying to get it into our brain. Oh, my God, Cardigan Welsh Corgi. How does that compare to a bloodhound? How do you choose between them? Which do I like better? That's not the point. The point isn't which you think is cuter or more handsome. It's which is the perfect version of that breed. So I think we as spectators are are really looking in the wrong place. It's like a a sleight of hand. We're looking at the handler and thinking, well, did they just do something right or wrong? Because there was one who, who knocked his or her knee, I forget which, into the dog's head in order to get the dog to turn the corner. And I thought, well, shouldn't the dog know that he's going to go in a circle? I saw the the person, the handler, having to block the dog a bit. And I wondered, is that really great handling, or does that show that the dog itself wasn't paying enough attention to know what the next track was going to be? Is that that something that you noticed? I think of Westminster as the Oscars. Yes, yes. You know, the run for the roses or something. Yes. And even the most trained, wonderful best animal or person makes goofs. Every right. year, the Oscar has goofs. Oh, gosh, yes. People and, fall down and, the stairs, for God's sake, or, or in the Golden Globes, right, they get drunk right, before right. their acceptance or they speech. forget to uh, forget to thank their Absolutely, something, absolutely. Something. Yes. Um, it's, I think that some of the dogs are not used to that atmosphere, even some of the dogs that make it that far. Yes. And the crowd, I have been there. The crowd is very noisy. It's yes. like a Super Bowl. It's very noisy. And um, it can startle some, and it can set them on edge. And uh, what I admired about the two that had dogs that were a little bit, you know, looking around. I don't yes. know if you noticed the bloodhound was looking behind himself a couple of times. Yes. Coming and going. Um what I admired was that the handlers just calmly got them back to what they were supposed to be doing, and they calmed down, and they were fine after that. There was um, another dog, I forget which terrier, and I thought, okay, does this show that the terrier is doing his job? He's looking all around the whole time while trotting, trotting mm-hmm. beautifully, but looking mm-hmm. over to the side, like checking everybody out. I thought, well, is that a sign of alertness? Is that good? Or should he be right. more alert to this job? <laughs> And one doesn't, and I guess it's also subjective for the judge. The judge can say, well, look at that perky alert dog checking everything out, as opposed exactly. to Skye, who had her focus and her job on exactly that handler every minute. What did he want? She was giving it to him. It was, like you say, it was a, it was a dance, really, because he didn't have to require anything of her. There were two dogs that did something that I wonder would this have counted against them. They didn't make it into the best in show ring. And one was the miniature bull terrier who was hoovering up the leftover pieces and people call them crumbs. No, these are delicious pieces of real meat. And, and when the camera shows that carpet, it is littered with other handlers dropped pieces of meat. Well, I think any dog who's smart is going to go, hey, let me have some of that on my way over to there. But did that count against the dog? Because th- two or three times he's like, hang on, let me get a snack. No, not really. As I really sometimes all I have to see is two or three steps. Interesting. Uh, let's say half a dozen steps at least. Interesting. You know, if we know if they are what we call clean coming and going, we know if they are reaching the way they are supposed to reach. We don't really need the whole round 
to be able to determine that. Right. You're only going to look at that is for the dog itself, for the owners, for the show atmosphere. Right. Everything can settle down and and maybe. No, that wouldn't that wouldn't have made any difference. If if the dog had continued to do it the entire time, then it would have have been been a little a little unprofessional of the dog. Right. And and that happens occasionally. Sure. Because, I mean, if there's really good snacks and, you know, the dog hasn't eaten for a few hours because they don't want him to have to poo or pee while he's in there, it's like, hello, doesn't anyone see what's on the ground? Am I the only one here with a nose? The other thing that I noticed was it was one of the bigger dogs. I want to say even a Great Pyrenees, but it may have been a dog like a Great Pyrenees. And the handler, and I wondered, was this to cover up, quote unquote, a fault of the dog? Was the dog not really attentive? Was the handler doing a poor job? They kind of had a stranglehold on the dog. And that leash always seems to be quite high up behind the ears. But this person kind of had the, this handler, had the dog's head kind of at an angle and almost seemed to be dragging the dog. Did you notice that mm-hmm. at all in the handling of some of the big heavy co- it was a it was a pale colored dog and I'm pretty sure if it yeah, was Yeah, I don't think it was the Great Pyrenees. Um I did I can't remember which breed it was now. Um it, it could be partially that the dog hasn't been in that large an atmosphere of a dog show and that noisy I an atmosphere. Uh it could also be that the handler themselves right. has, has had not been in that kind of an atmosphere. It's it's very stressful, of course. You know, man, if I were doing it, I know what I'd be worried about. I'd be worried that I was going to trip. And Absolutely. Oh, sure. A mil- so many things you think, oh, what if, you know, I have toilet paper on my heel? It could be anything yeah. because everybody's watching and it's not the thing you worry about that's going to happen. It's the thing you don't expect. But is the handler supposed to keep such a taut leash on a dog? I mean, is there uh, a, is it depend on the breed whether or not you can have some slack in that leash and the dog is supposed to like be with you regardless in a kind of obedient type way or are you meant to hold it quite quite tightly no we prefer to have what we call a loose lead i would have thought that so the leash is rather loose however um again the circumstances can change that and the handler knows what to do if the dog is nervous, I think I better tighten up on the lead. I see. Or something of that effect. But in fact, a looser lead where the dog is in step with the person by choice, if you will, as opposed to being held right. there, is right. desirable. Well, that's good because that teaches that's what we're supposed to know about our own dogs on a leash. And most of us tighten up when we get nervous and worry about something. And then the dog picks that right. up and then it becomes a, 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 a kind of a, a circle, circular problem. Well, it was really wonderful to watch the, the dog show and know that I was get, we were all going to be able to, to, to benefit from your insight um, to it. I'm sure that if people have other questions, they can write to me at radiopetlady at gmail.com. And Chris will be happy to either come back if we get enough questions or maybe I'll write a blog about it. But Chris, it's so great to have someone who knows the, the behind the scenes and to have the privilege of your view on all this. I'm glad you're so happy about Sky winning. I thought she was so marvelous. I don't know anything about wire fox terriers, not like you're supposed to. I just know they're, to me, an old-fashioned dog. You know, a dog that is back from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and it's a lovely, lovely-looking dog, and those little eyebrows, oh, my God, her eyebrows. Yeah. Just so darling. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, the the next time there's a big dog show, maybe you'll come back and guide us through it again. I will be happy to. Much appreciated. Have a great day, Chris, and thank you so much for being with us. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick word.
Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussy cats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am back with Dr. Benjamin Hart, the distinguished professor emeritus at UC Davis in California, who has been doing some extraordinary research work that is something I've had my eye on, the, the topic of early spay and neuter and how does that affect a dog's health, particularly cancer and ACL injuries. This gentleman has not only been doing this work with the AKC Canine Health Foundation funding, but he's about to do even more of it. So Dr. Hartman, I am so excited to meet you and hear what you have found about this very important topic that you're the only one really looking at it in a scientific way, aren't you? Well, thank you. First of all, it's an honor to be on your program, and, and uh, thanks for uh, making it possible to have this chat. Now, uh, I, we are the only ones, we are our team here at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, we're the only one looking at uh, joint disorders and cancers um, in, in, in a breed at a time. In other words, you know, looking at one breed and all of the problems that may stem from uh, spay or neuter on that breed, and then our plans ought to go on to another breed and another breed. So, uh, yes, we're the only ones looking at it in this systematic way. And, and you know, when you think about the people who, who are caregivers for, for dogs, um, they're interested in not, you know, if to neuter uh, or spay their females, neuter their males, but also when, you know. And uh, uh, I know from talking with many uh, dog uh, people that they're uncomfortable with the usual um, uh, mainline advice they might get from veterinarians or animal uh, advice groups, you know, well, just, just make sure your pet's neutered before six months of age. And, right. And, you know, that's just not, uh, if you think about the physiological effects of gonadal hormones, we, we, we know that there's, uh, there could be some problems in that. Well, I've, I've often said on the show, and so far no one's, people might be throwing rotten eggs and tomatoes at me from afar, but being radio, I can't see them. But I, I know it's politically incorrect to question early spay-neuter because people that want to hear selectively hear you saying, we're questioning spay-neuter. No, the question is when. And I've often said if you took a prepubescent boy or girl, human, just so people can relate to it more clearly, and removed all of their sexual hormones before puberty or at puberty, they would look like eunuchs and maybe act very differently because hormones affect the way our brain develops and our body and our bones and our musculature. And it's fantastic that you're able to study this from the point of view of not just that overall kind of amorphous wellness, but the issue of cancer, which is now seen as an epidemic. And I think people have not been 
stepping back and saying, okay, we have an epidemic of cancer that seems to be happening socially at the same time that we have almost across the board spay neuter. Now some, some rescues and shelters are doing it at 8, 10, 12 weeks. But certainly we were all told, like, brush your teeth and, you know, say your prayers before you go to bed. Make sure you spay and neuter those dogs at six months. So you're the one finding, hey, maybe yeah. that what has come to be seen as common wisdom is neither wise nor should be common. And you looked at Golden Retrievers, one of my favorite breeds, and I lost mine to pancreatitis. But the epidemic, if you want to call it that, of cancer in large male golden, 75% will get cancer and die from it. That's an insane number, right? Well, it, it is, and the, the, the golden is particularly vulnerable to cancers, and, and so it's not too surprising to find that uh, the, the spay and, and neuter act affect the, the, um, the occurrence of cancer there. I just might put it in aside here that uh, we're also looking now at Labrador retrievers and, and uh, making a comparison of the golden retriever to the oh, Labrador Oh, interesting. Retriever. Right, and what we're finding is that the Labrador Retriever is not near as vulnerable to getting cancers from spay or neuter as is the Golden Retriever. That's interesting. Well, uh, of course, there's a genetic component in the Golden to begin with. Just correct me on this. I heard it once at at a dog show, and I don't know if it stuck correctly in my brain, that the Golden Retrievers, the the look of the Golden Retriever most sought after, um, both in dog shows and then in people's perception of the Golden, which used to be a more red-colored dog, was a very pale Golden, almost white-ish, with a huge amount of feathering and hair. And this all came from one progenitor, I don't know if it's six or seven or eight generations ago, and that almost all nice quality, good American Goldens have some of his genetic material. Is he called a stallion? Is that the right word? There's some word in breeding for one animal from which all the others have descended. Oh, guys, you know, I I haven't followed that, so I I really can't comment on that. But but I I can say that the the Golden is such a... uh, has such a wonderful behavioral profile. Yes. And, you know, they're used with uh, their number one assistance dog, you know, for uh, service dogs, for for uh, people that need help with, uh, you know, uh, wheelchairs or right. uh, leading uh, the blind and so forth. And, and, and they're so concerned about cancers and, and uh, the organizations that train these dogs. Yes. They're moving away and they're, they're moving to other, other breeds because they don't want to be beset with these and you know, let me just tell you one thing here. In comparison with the with the lab, we're finding now if you just look at the rate of cancer in the golden, that is percent that get any one of the three cancers we studied. Just you know, and the intact animals never been spayed or never been neutered. That three percent get those three cancers, and you and it goes up three times that in the females for those that are spayed. Wow. So. Yeah, it goes up to you know about uh, you know ten to fifteen percent of them come down with those with those cancers that we've looked at that that they're vulnerable to. Well, in your work, you had three groups. You had early spay neuter before twelve months old, late, which wasn't all that late. It was just twelve months old or older, and then intact. And if I read the the press release correctly, it was only the intact dogs and bitches that that benefited from never being spayed neutered or was it the early ones that had higher incidence oh it was the um 
uh, in, in that study, the, the, uh, the early ones uh, with the males got the cancers, and the later ones, later spay females also got the cancers compared to the intacts. And you know, now we're looking at, we're dividing that, that spay uh, and neuter date more carefully. We're going over the data and expanded it. So now we look at before six months, Great. and we look at six to 11. Now we're looking at one year, and now we're looking at the, at the older range to get. So we can narrow down because, you know, see, someone, someone's going to adopt a puppy. They want as detailed as information we can get That's them. That's right. So, that's right, and, and even approach now, and, and that's great. And so um, I can just point out right now that that the the spay and neuter, both spay and neuter, and this is true of Labradors and uh, Golden Retrievers before six months really has an impact on the occurrence of joint disorders. I I can attest to that personally. I have three of the three male Weimaraners that I adopted were six months old approximately when I got them and two of them were intact and one had been recently neutered and all three blew out both of their ACLs and the the AKC Canine Health Foundation points out that over a billion dollars one billion dollars a year is spent by pet owners to repair these ACLs but the pain and suffering to the dogs is so awful and the arthritis that follows from it these dogs remain cripples for life. They, they can't even do a normal life, much less a really active, you know, whether it's agility or running or hunting or what have you. So that is equal, maybe not as horrendous as cancer, but it's a terrible impact on quality of life. Oh, oh it definitely is. And it's not only the, uh, the knee problems, the uh, what we call craniocruciate ligament tears, right. and so forth, but it's also hip dysplasia Ooh. and elbow dysplasia. And it depends on the... On the on the breed and the and the, uh, uh, on the gender. I mean, and, and golden retrievers hip dysplasia and uh, the knee problems, the craniocruciate ligament areas are particularly uh, prominent there in the in the spayed or neutered animals. This is before one year of age. It's not just before six months, but we found out when we we looked at before six months or we looked at one year. Uh, you have to really neuter or spay beyond. Uh, one year to get really away from that effect on the joint disorders. So what would you say, 14 months, a year and a couple of months, or even a year and a half? I mean, what, what would you say is, is a margin of safety? No, I think that's a good one right there. Uh, um, you know, you're, you're taking into account some individual differences. So, you know, at 14 months, something like that. And then don't forget, though, with the females, you still have a tendency to... Uh, bring on um, the cancers at about three to four times the rate you would have uh, for the uh, intact animals, if they were just continued to be intact. One of the, the, the comments that is made sometimes, I think erroneously, in support of, of spaying a female, and it's always talked about as early spay, is that pyometria is a problem in females, that they can get this horrible, life-threatening uh, infection of their uterus. But I imagine that the incidence of that, in, in truth, is way lower than this much increased risk of cancer. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. It's not only that, but veterinarians um, uh, often mention mammary cancer as well. Because yes. Because that's what we've been taught. And, uh, in fact, in the Golden Retrievers, they don't come down with mammary cancer very often. We had, uh, we had about 150 in our uh, intact females in our group that we're looking at we looked at 760 
uh, golden retrievers, and now it, the database is up to over a thousand. And wow. the intact animals, <laughs> they didn't get mammary cancer, and you know one percent got pyometra. As a couple of the late spayed females got mammary cancer, but as you say, you know that's not that's not as much of a concern as hemangiosarcomas, mast cell tumor, and lymphoma that occur with much higher probability in, in the uh, spayed females. And, of course, mast cell tumors are not easy to even feel or find on a golden retriever for an owner. I mean, I now have gone from goldens to cockers to, to wine runners, which I now do all, exclusively rescue at the moment unless some puppy crosses my path and I'm just going to have to drool all over it. But on a Weimaraner, they're wearing a spandex suit. So if they have something funny looking on their skin, you can kind of jump right on it if you're, you know, see something, do something, which is Dr. Sue, the cancer vet, saying. But if you have a golden with that fabulous coat, you're not going to even find your mast cell cancer until it's too big to, to be safely, you know, to get you out of the woods. So it's well, not like something that you'd absolutely find early. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's true. And, and, you know, they say about mammary cancers, you know, most mammary uh, tumors are not, are not malignant. They're That's right. And then you can palpate, you can you know, That's right. probably uh, palpate the mammary area of the female, you know, once a month or something like that to, if they leave the female intact, just to make sure nothing's going on. Now, we've talked a lot about Goldens because that's a great population to look at because of their cancer. I understand that the, the AKC Canine Health Foundation is also funding your research to include German Shepherd dogs and Dachshunds. Now, is, are Dachshunds picked going to be in your study because they're very popular as a small breed dog or dot, dot, dot? Why Doxies? Okay, we, we wanted to choose a breed that was um, fairly popular and different. Right, um, morphologically than the lab yes. or the golden retriever, and and we know that the uh, dachshunds have uh, bat problems frequently. Yes, and but we didn't know if, if spay and neuter would affect the uh, the occurrence of back problems or the vulnerability to back problems. So uh, we'll, we will be looking at that. That's so we, that's that's you know, a we, we that's a really good that point. Display is not going to be an issue in dachshunds. So we're going to look at that. So we, we kind of look at to try to get a variety of breed shapes so that by the time the study's finished, we've, we've, we've gone around to a pretty good sample of dog breeds. Now, it's a, the AKC, obviously, is a representative of a lot of purebred show dogs, um, or, some t or dogs getting many different kinds of letters after their name for, for greatness, not even just in the confirmation show ring. Most of those dogs remain intact because often they're used for breeding. And my understanding is that the most responsible breeders don't even breed their dogs till they're four and five to make sure they have not developed any of the genetic problems that may be endemic to their breed. So are those mostly the dogs you're looking at because the AKC is funding it? Are you looking at some of these most high-level performance uh, purebred dogs that are intact for that reason? Oh no, no. Um, we 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 sat back and you know talked with uh, our, our scientific colleagues and, and other people, try to get an idea of what would be a good sample of right. breeds to look at. So we just went on what would be, in other words, they had to be popular enough in our database that we get a large enough sample to do statistical work on. Right. And then we're interested in, in what a, uh, a pet uh, caregiver looks at. So I right. uh, never even entered our mind about the show 
um, area. And so, and then in fact, the intact dogs that we that we have in our database at the veterinary uh, school here at Davis, they're not show breed. They're just people who 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 want to keep dogs and just keep them intact. That's the way they want about it. And they're not sure if they want to breed them or not. You know, so they just leave them. And they'll say, well, if there's a problem, I'll I'll have them neutered or spayed later. So no, uh, they have uh, they have not pushed us in any direction. They've been very they've been wonderful to work with. Oh, I didn't and, I didn't mean that they were pressuring me. What oh, I really was asking were where would you find all those intact goldens? Because the world I live in, the circles that I move in, there's so much social pressure expectation that dogs will be neutered that people that don't neuter them are seen as like too uh they're too uh they project too much onto their dog's genitalia and imagine that oh my god i'm a man i don't want to be neutered or they're just ignorant of the importance of spay neuter which may turn out to be in their benefit if that really is the reason that they stayed intact of course your findings i hope are going to have people really stop and think and make personal decisions about responsibly restraining their pets so they're not leaping around copulating and having babies that no one intends to, you know, take care of or, or give homes to. But I'm just surprised there's that many in, in Davis that there's that many intact Goldens because every place I've ever lived, including 23 years in Southern California, you never saw a pair of, of testicles swinging around. I mean, it, they, you just didn't see them. Well, yeah, the, that may be true, but, you know, you have to, if you have a large enough database and and we're, we get between 800 and 1,000 uh, cases, uh, you, you'll find, uh, you know, 150 intact Goldens, and that's enough to that's do the work. Well, all yeah. I can say is that we've run out of time, and I absolutely am hoping you'll come back with what you discover about the German Shepherd dog and the labs and the doxies when they, when they get studied. I think that if this isn't a wake-up call, for those of you who didn't listen to my earlier wake-up calls, if you buy a puppy from a responsible breeder, never from a pet store, never online, never on the internet, or you get a puppy some other way, or you rescue a dog that's still intact, please stop and think about the work Dr. Benjamin Hart's been doing, and do not just have a knee-jerk spay-neuter, because when you live with these dogs and then you watch their deaths from cancer, or you watch their crippling from these joint diseases, the trade-off to me, I have to tell you, Dr. Hart, I wish I'd met you and I wish your work had been done five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because I've had so much suffering for myself and my animals. And I do believe it was preventable if spay neuter had been delayed. So I, I love the work you're doing. I think all of us will benefit, and we have to sort of change the politically correct idea about spay-neuter for everybody all the time as soon as possible. I'm sure you, you're thinking that way yourself after your work. Well, thank you. That's, that, that's exactly my, my sentiments, and I appreciate the uh, opportunity to, sh to uh, share these ideas with you. It's fantastic, and many thanks to the AKC Canine Health Foundation for, for their support of this work and, and supporting your, your very forward-thinking uh, work. Thanks so much, Dr. Hart. Look forward to having you back again soon to, to further discuss. Have a great day. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.